there's no better course. So, and cross country skiing is meant to be hard. Uh, really fun race. And hi, I'm Rosie Frankowski from APU. See, here we have with the hero Bjorn Daly. That's the great thing about sport. Make it rain. Make make it rain. You play to win. It is. I mean, that's that's our sport. So. Toughen up, train harder, and get in that pack and make it rain. Make it rain. Make it make it rain. First of all, make it rain. Make it rain. You see, the critic of air must use air to make a case against air. The fact that he's able to make an argument at all proves that he's wrong. And from that, I, it's sort of up to me to pick the ones that I really like, which is, can't be super hard at that time. Yeah. I'm sure you have experience with testing two very nice pairs of skis, you know, that they feel exactly the same. Really. Let's go. Ain't no way they can stop me now, Daddy, cause I'm on my way, I can feel my way. On the backstretch, it is Mellon and Richardson. During the race, she heard me. I'm very flattered about that. <laughs> you are skiing very wise. You know, we're gonna have to work hard. We're gonna have to we're gonna have to train hard. But you know, this, this group has got a has got an already work ethic. You know, so that's not gonna be the problem. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Cedar Skier Podcast. We're so glad that you could join us today. We have a lot of things to talk about in the world of Nordic skiing. You are joining us live on Shovel Lake Public Radio here in Leadville, Colorado, the fastest and most exciting ski podcast, Nordic ski-specific podcast in all of Lake County, and many interesting topics to get to. So, as Devin Kershaw would say, we're going to jump right into it here, and uh, there's a lot of things going on. First of all, this past weekend, we had state cross-country ski meets, and in Minnesota and in Colorado, uh, two states that I follow intimately in the Nordic ski world, we had the state cross-country championships going, uh, taking place. Battle Mountain, my um, the school that I worked at for a couple of months before uh, assuming my new position here with the Veiled Daily, and of course working for CedarSkier.com, obviously. Um, uh, that that was exciting because Battle Mountain, the girls, won the whole shebang ski championship. That's Alpine and Cross Country combined. That's how they do the team team scoring. But we have a lot of little interesting little 
tidbits I want to bring up about state cross-country skiing, okay? Because now I've lived in Maine, Minnesota, and Colorado, and each of those states have a a decent amount of pride in their cross-country skiing state championships, high school league state championships, okay? But they are different. And um, I think if I had to rank the states just right off, uh, you know, throwing it out of my hip right now, I would say Minnesota has the best of the three. In fact, Minnesota's state cross-country ski meet might be the best in the whole country in terms of prestige and meaning. Um, Maine, though, has has good tradition. So I, winning a state ski championship in Maine isn't like the end-all be-all, but there are some good Maine state skiers. And, and I would say in general, a lot of the good schools, they, they're going to compete at the Maine state ski championships. They're not skipping it. Um, I, I think... I don't know this 100% for sure. Maybe we could look it up here, but Vermont, New Hampshire. Um, I feel like Vermont, the state high school ski championships, like I don't even know if it's a thing at all. So they, they've got more clubs in there and they're focused on Nenza, New England, you know, juniors and club stuff like that. So, uh, but anyway, this was kind of a topic where it's like you're following in Minnesota. Everyone really cares about the Minnesota State Ski Championships. If you go to skinnyski.com, which is one of my, you know, daily websites I like to check, uh, skinnyski.com, Skinny Ski has good classified ads. They've got good trail reports. Obviously, if you live in the Midwest, that's like where you're going to go to find out, you know, where, where to ski. Um, but the, and they've got decent articles. I, I'm not a huge fan of their World Cup coverage. It's like a, I, I'm going to go to faster ski. I'm going to go to bigger websites probably for that. Um, but they, they do an okay job covering that. They also are better at college. They cover the collegiate scene. So that that's kind of cool. And they've got all these local writers that are going to peg pen stuff, um, usually you know emphasizing some of the Minnesota um, athletes. But anyway, let's let's get into it. So, so Minnesota State cross-country skiing is awesome. Maine is cool. Colorado kind of sucks. And I don't really understand why this is. And it was kind of my first Grip Wax Nation rant that I, I sort of wanted to get to today. Uh, Grip Wax Nation. Oh, for those of you who are like, what in the heck are you talking about right now? <clears throat> um, Grip Wax Nation. It's our new thing, I think. So... Um, I really want to get some T-shirts, maybe a mug, Grip Wax Nation. It'll, it'll be like a picture of, um, you know, just a canister of like Swix VR40 or something, and then a circle and a line through it. Uh, you know, like don't – we never need to use Grip Wax. Like double pull everything. Uh, but Grip Wax Nation would be sort of like the pitchfork nation for cedarskier.com. So when we go on rants, when we have these kind of – um, I don't know, angry point of views, really divisive takes, th- then it's it's sort of the Grip Wax Nation thing. And if you're a member of Grip Wax Nation, you tend to side with, with Cedar Skier on, and CedarSkier.com, I guess I should say, our, our point of view on all these controversial takes. Okay, uh, But anyway, <clears throat> my controversial take for today is why is the state ski meet such a joke in Colorado? Um, and it shouldn't be. Like that, that I'm just going to say it right now. Like that's stupid. So... I feel for young athletes in Colorado, and and I have talked, I'll say this backing up, I haven't looked into this enough where like talking to both high school and club coaches, I have talked to high school coaches, I've talked to some club related people, I guess I'll say either parents or sort of assistant coaches in this realm, um, as far as like, how do you, you know, why aren't you competing at state or you're missing these state meets to go to a club race or blah, blah, blah. Um, so I have some knowledge, but I, I honestly, I'll say it right out that I would like to 
talk to some club coaches, present my issues, like why is it that we have it this way and what can we do to remedy the situation before I really write a like, you know, article that I lay out my <clears throat> strict viewpoints on this. But coffee break, hold on. <laughs> this reminds me that <clears throat> one of my pet peeves when I listen to podcasts is people who are like talking on the podcast. Because it doesn't really seem to make any sense. It's like you can record a podcast anytime. It's funny when it's people on the radio. If they're like eating or something over their lunch hour in the radio, that's how it is. It's like, okay, whatever. But um, hearing people eat on a podcast, it's like just eat at a different time. Honestly, like how hard is it? It's annoying to hear you eat while you're trying to talk. But is is it the same for drinking? Can you drink on a podcast? I feel like drinking, you're doing it all the time. You got to do it for vocal maintenance. So it's okay. Okay, I continue. Grip Wax Nation. There's a first Grip Wax Nation rant. Anyway, <clears throat> the bottom line that I don't think I disagree with anything, no matter how much education I do looking into this, people I talk to, I am firmly in the camp that the state high school meet should be something that all the kids are participating in. Here is the one pushback I have seen on the side from some Colorado people who more side on the club. So they have athletes who are elite, okay? is It's sort of like, well, the state high school uh, races are it's not as good a competition as just even your average Joe club race so the reason this came up by the way is we had a JNQ on the same like weekend overlapping kind of with the state high school meet so many of the best skiers were at this JNQ instead of states all right now there's many reasons I would get a little bit up in arms about this first of all the very best athletes didn't need the JNQ to qualify for actual junior nationals they've already qualified it's just kind of stupid that they're even racing in it you know like I would honestly, in my own tapering plan, just go, heck, I'm just going to race at the state championships because it'll be kind of low-key, easy. I'm not, I am I won't even let my other Rocky Mountain Nordic Junior national teammates know what, I, what kind of fitness I'm in. I'm going to go race this, enjoy it, have some fun, high school. I only get it once in a lifetime. I, I'll be in doing club stuff the next like five, six years, whatever. So it, it just is kind of weird that they would go to this. It, 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 I would actually argue that the Colorado State Championships has more weight than winning this JNQ does, if you've qualified. Uh, if you haven't, I guess you got to go to the JNQ and try and get those final points, make the team, whatever. Okay, but aside from that, that that's why this whole issue came up, is we've got this doubling of schedule. So I've heard some people say, hey, we sort of want to create the Colorado High School League as this participation focused if if you're a kid who maybe joined skiing when you were an eighth grader or even a sophomore right like you're just your it's standard high school sport we still want to have a space for you okay and so that's sort of what the colorado high school league was and clubs you know yeah these are kids who are ultra intense and serious it's a higher level of competition blah 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 my response to that is okay fine why why is that not the case in minnesota in Minnesota, the very best skiers are racing at the State High School League. The very, very top skiers. So you've got some people who race for Lopit Nordic Racing Club, like LNR, the big Minneapolis club, the Cooper uh, Lennox or Cooper Cup or whatever is it? Not Cooper Cup. <laughs> Cooper Cup's the St. Louis Rams wide receiver. There's a guy named Cooper who Cooper Camp. Cooper Camp. He's one of the best skiers in the Midwest, right? One state. He races for LNR, I believe, uh, but he also races for his high school. And so, so why, why is that not an issue there? That would be my first thing to just put to bed that whole idea. It's like, yeah, I get that that's what's happened in Colorado, but it shouldn't. So you are correct in stating right now, Colorado, it sort of has this vibe, the high school league of 
this is the space for your average athletes. And the clubs is where the really good skiers are. And there's some athletes who sort of mix in and dip a little bit into both, but definitely not all the best in the high school. I would just say that's stupid because Minnesota obviously figured it out. So why can't we? And I think an immediate, you know, ideas just no 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 everyone everyone just throw everyone in the Colorado State read right it's fine if we have really really ultra good people and also people who are kind of average and also people who are new you know like so what right now the rate it the race had 60 or 70 people in it like you can have a race with 200 athletes in fact Minnesota State High School League results I should look at this um real quick here I'm, I'm just pulling up the 2020 results because it was quick and easy so the 2020 Minnesota State High School League boys race had 156 kids in it. Well, and honestly, guys, Minnesota State High School League, they just, they have every, it's so much easier to follow as a fan. Like, honestly, every sport kind of follows the same structure where you've got sections and state, you know, and it's just so nice. Like, everyone, everyone goes to sections for every sport. You don't like have to qualify for sections. So basketball, if your section has eight teams, right, all eight are going to show up at the section tournament and an eight team bracket, one verse eight, we go on, right? So everyone's going to the postseason. Um, and if you're the top seed, you know, your regular season matters because you're still playing against the eight seed, which they're usually going to stink, right? In cross country, if you've got 18 teams in your section, everyone goes to the section meet, you know, and the top two teams go to state or whatever it is. And I think it's the same in Nordic skiing where, you know, there's eight sections. So at every state meet, we're going to see 16 teams based on team score. Actually, I'm looking at this right now. I know this is 2020, so it might have been different, but it looks like we only have eight teams. So maybe it's just the winning team in Nordic skiing. Point being, they've got sections and they've got states. It's really easy to to follow as a fan and you've got all these different classes. God, Colorado is so annoying. It's like in one sport, you've got leagues, conferences, regions, you know, like there's all these different denominations and well if you win your league you're automatically in but then we take the second like you could they have some some tournaments where it's like a league tournament the winner goes and then the second and third place also go and then they fill out the rest with rpi it's more complicated than the ncaa tournament is honestly like and even in the ncaa division one basketball tournament you've got yeah if you win your conference you're automatically going and then we're going to fill it based on like a selection show which is kind of their rpi right oh my gosh it's just so Driving me up a wall. Here's another grip wax nation thing. But anyway, what when you look at these results <clears throat> of the 2020 state meet, what you see is you got 156 kids. Colorado, I think we had 60 or 70. So if there's definitely not a space issue here, no, just throw everyone in. Colorado, like this is 156 kids, by the way, who qualified for this race. So they either made it because their team won their section or they made it because of uh, qualifying as an individual. Our producer, co-producer, Aja, over there in the corner, she started gagging, and I had to pause our podcast here for a second because I'm not sure if she's going to throw up. I don't know if you guys knew this, by the way, but Aja, you know, she's a German Shepherd Border Climax. So when the Germans won the relay, um, I guess the the partying version for that is, like, to go out and find a deer gut pile and then eat all of it and then throw it up in the middle of the carpet at midnight because that's what happened to Aja. She was out late partying the German victory in the uh, girls' relay. We're going to get to that, by the way, in terms of a wax controversy. <clears throat> okay. So... What am I trying to say here? That's the first thing I'll just shut down. You can't say, hey, in Colorado, we're going to create these two distinctions, one for serious kids, one more not as serious, and that's how it's going to be. That's stupid, okay? And you know what? The the kids in the not as serious group, I don't think they really appreciate that either. Like, because all that that is, is like, what if you get fifth at, in the Colorado State meet? 
like all you have no idea what that really means. You know, this year, the guys actually, there were a couple really good studs at the top, the top five guys. And the reason I know that, by the way, is one of the athletes who is on the J- the junior national team for the Rocky Mountain Division, Jace Peters, you know, he's local here in Lendley. He's a great skier. He did not win. He got third. And Ferguson St. John has been owning every single person in this in this league for uh, the entire year. He, he got second at one race to Sullivan Middow, who also is not a club racer. He's much more a mountain biker and runner. Um, and so it's just, it's annoying. Like, like actually you could argue the Rocky Colorado is leaving home two of their top guys in Ferguson and Sullivan, because those guys have, uh, have raced very well. And if you stuck up in a club race, I, I think they would have certainly qualified based on these results. But anyway, if you're the seventh, eighth, 10th skier, right? You're just, you have no clue what that even means. If I'm, I'm looking here at the, the results, by the way, 2020 Minnesota, uh, ninth place was Will Nemeth and his brother, Zach Nemeth uh, in front, St. Cloud Cathedral. I believe both those guys are racing or one of them at least is racing at Michigan Tech. Now, Cooper Lennox, seventh, he's racing Michigan Tech. But those Nemeth brothers, I think are racing somewhere. They might be in the EISA even. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, it's just like, I don't know. They're the, Oh, Adric Craftson, 18th sophomore, Stillwater area. He's a senior this year. I just saw a picture of him on skinny ski winning one of their J and Q's. I mean, to get in the top 20 at the Minnesota state, uh, cross country ski meet is a, is a massive accomplishment. And you can know it. If you just start looking at these results, you'll see names of people who are, um, of a good skiers, good club skiers, etc. So, that's a problem. Okay. I think, I think the solution is, you know, do it, just look at Minnesota, whatever they're doing, try to implement that. Minnesota has a lot of high schools who have cross country skiing. There's, there's tons of numbers. And I'm sure we see this, by the way, this impacts the citizens races moving up too. If, if there's a, the, the reason in Minnesota and Wisconsin has a great high school league state championship too, the reason you've got so many citizens racers in those two states and Michigan as well, you've got all these high school kids who are, are competing. I mean, Moorhead High School, guys, the school that I went to, graduated from in 2010. We did not have a Nordic ski team when I graduated. Um, I went to Bennett in any way. I played basketball, okay? But the year I left, or the two years later, the um, our cross-country running coach, who had kind of stepped out of uh, coaching running, he retired actually officially the year I left. Like that, that was his last year. His son was in my grade. He started up this Nordic ski team. Okay, so we're looking at like 2012. By 2016, I think he had 50 kids on it. <clears throat> I know when I went back in 2019, he was talking about um, how you know they had dedicated this area above the hockey arena, a wax room. It was like fully functional. You know. Um, I know just by following them on Twitter and on Facebook and in the news, they're big time. I mean, they they did get a team to state. So not only are they competing well, but just the culture is there. That you've got 50, 60 kids with good equipment. And when you live in Moorhead, that is not easy to do. you got to drive down to Minneapolis, go to the one place that cares about skiing, <clears throat> buy, buy your good skis, buy your good boots, buy roller skis, you know, but but what Coach Dewar has proven is if you've got a guy with a vision, you it does not matter where your team is, you can start a Nordic ski program. And that, that's that's it's an amazing testament to that because Fargo Moorhead is not an ideal place to have Nordic skiing. They they just there's not great conditions. It's very cold, very windy. So almost always it's it's slow skiing. It's not enjoyable skiing. It's slow and cold. There's no not hills really anywhere so we knew that from running you know you just really couldn't train that i actually think it helped us with running you know you can, you can run faster generally but it, other than it's cold uh so 
Coach Dewar, hats off to him. I think the fact that the Minnesota State High School League has such a competitive um, league, all those teams, I look at his program and I go, okay, that obviously did not discourage him, his athletes, or the growth of his program. The fact that he had to enter into a realm of the ultra, ultra competitive. And I think that's the argument maybe coming in Colorado. It's like, oh, if we throw all these club racers in there, you know, like the the beginners aren't going to feel welcome. It's going to be hard to start programs, blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, that's ridiculous. The problem is, is we just don't have people who are willing to step in at schools and start programs and be like Carl Remsen, like Lake County, who's a great dude. And his, you know, his program's busting at the seams. He, he honestly has the right vision, the idea of, I want to help kids loves learn and love skiing for a lifetime and if that means that they can they need to go and receive extra uh, coaching from a j from a club team great if it means i am um, going to ski swaps to find skis because i got a bunch of new skiers who've never touched skis in their life and they're 15 and i'm going to teach them technique uh, blah 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 great that that's that's what we need we need more people who are selfless and willing to start those programs by the way i'm not going to be that person i don't <laughs> i'm not into coaching right now i'm just not at that stage of my life but but you can't you can't make the argument that it's like you know um it would not work because they just won't be good enough okay my alma mater high school started from scratch like five six well i guess it'd be eight years ago now or whatever but within three or four years they had numbers they had people who got it uh, you need so, you need someone leading it who gets it Okay, and uh, no, they haven't produced a state champion, but that's just a that's just a matter of time, honestly. Uh, you, you'll get some stud. I know we had a guy who placed forty third, is a great skier, Jack Lee, and he did well at the um, Cordy too. So they they they've had decent athletes, and they've had good runners too. So I mean, they've just they've got it set up there now. Um, and the high schools everywhere they're due, and it's just sad because in Colorado we have we have the best conditions for Nordic skiing here. Uh, we have the longest season. We have the best snow quality. We have the best snow quantity. We have the best scenic enjoyment. We've got hills. We have everything at our disposal. Now, what could what we could be fighting against here in Colorado is the fact that we also have great mountain biking. We have great trail running. We have some other um, sports and activities that people who would be good skiers might drift to. That was brought up to, to me by a loyal listener. <clears throat> I think it's a great point. But I just thought of this in, in states like Minnesota. Let's take them, for example. Minnesota, uh, first of all, hockey, which I would say is kind of the closest winter parallel. Like great hockey athletes would be phenomenal Nordic skiers in Minnesota. Um, I know this because even again at Moorhead where we have a very rich hockey history, we would often pull a couple of studs from that team and they were, they would run for us in junior high and sometimes early years in high school. They were super good. They're very fit. They just trained really hard. So they were great runners, great in track, good all around athletes. They would have been better at Nordic skiing than running even just from the, the technique crossover aspect, the muscle development, it would have been amazing. And I think, um, you know, the fact that hockey is actually king in Minnesota and it still doesn't take enough people away from those schools. I think that's a testimony that, that that's not that's not an, a good argument either. <clears throat> it's not so much that we've got these other options and athletes are drifting that way because of those options. I do think some of those sports are taking people, but it almost might be more of a social economic thing. Um and and the reason I say that is my experience in teaching in some of the schools in Colorado, 
um, especially in areas outside of the metro. I'm sure there's really high academic um, uh, schools there, but in like Denver and Colorado Springs and stuff. But in Colorado, we don't have the widespread high level of expectation in just your general public schools, high schools, elementary schools, etc. There are rich colleges in, in in the Midwest, Minnesota. You have the um, Minnesota Intercollegiate Athletic uh, Conference, all those Division three private schools kind of just laced throughout the state. And what that causes, I believe, is an enriched culture of education and learning and those high expectations in the city, too. So when you have a McAllister, a St. Olaf, a Carleton, um, <clears throat> a Concordia, St. Scholastica, these schools that are spread out throughout the state, they bring culture to that community. They bring orchestra, band, they bring um, academics, liberal arts, education, all that kind of stuff. You've got more professors in there than that are in those communities. So then those professors care about what their kids are being taught in the public schools. And what it what it leads to is the public schools have this kind of raised bar. Okay. And that I think actually as weird as it sounds, almost might have a connection to who participates in Nordic skiing. Because, I mean, if you look at people who are in sports like Nordic skiing, it is often your type A people, type A personalities, people coming from well-supported families that like they're they're intense about academics, they're intense about sports, they're just intense about life in general, um, and and so this, this is a little bit of conjecturing, but I'm just wondering if that's why we see in the Midwest. <clears throat> sort of just the mass population. It's obviously not just weather. Yeah, it's cold and there's snow, but we've got cold snow too. We've got better stuff in terms of that. It's obviously not just the fact that we've got some of these distractions and our talented athletes are doing other sports because in Minnesota, they've got way better hockey, way more hockey players, way better basketball, way more basketball. If you just went right down the line on all the winter sports, oh my gosh, they've got swimming. They've got, I mean, it's kind of amazing, honestly, in Colorado. I think, I, I don't know, population of the two states, but like we don't even offer a lot of the sports that every single high school in Minnesota has. Like, it's it's pretty common here in Colorado. If, if you went to a high school, it's like, what's your winter sports? They would just say basketball. Like, that'd be the only thing they, they would have. Or basketball and wrestling. In, in Minnesota, like, basketball, wrestling, swimming. We even had figure skating in Moorhead, but hockey. Like, it's standard. We were weird that we didn't really have a skiing team, but not all that weird just in the central Red River Valley. Not every, you know, Alexandria had had a good team, and that was kind of like the idolized, pedestalized program for Coach Dewar. He's like, we got we got to have that at Moorhead. We should. It was just, you're just kind of looking around like, yeah, but who's going to ski here? Like, this is a basketball, a soccer, and a hockey, and a wrestling community. We live in Fargo. Like, we've got three colleges. It's flat. Like, people want to do those sports. <clears throat> so... But anyway, I, I don't know. A little bit of rant there, but I think we. The, the point being is we have a huge issue, and I think, like, now that I've dissected it in this way, it does make it seem a little more hopeless. Like, okay, well, what are we going to do? Because if we open up the state meet to everyone, like, is that really going to fix the social economic issues you just stated? No, not really. Like, uh, so, but I think it could start. I, I think there has to be much better communication between these clubs, between these high schools where they go, look, we, we should make the, the Colorado state meet a big deal. Everyone should be there. I've actually even thought, why not just have the Colorado state high school championships double as a JNQ? So, <clears throat> what 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 you really could do there is like 
um, well, it'd be a little bit tough because you, you then you would have, I suppose, a club skier who might maybe didn't qualify for the state high school league by the state high school league rules, and then they show up because it's a JNQ. That maybe wouldn't work. You'd have to sort of like figure that out. But um, they they should they could maybe have it be where like the points from the JNQ athletes could double in terms of qualifying for that. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, and maybe that's an incentive as well for those athletes who race for a club to also race for their high school team. And like now what you're doing is all these high school races, they up their game because you've got, you have club athletes who have to race in them at least a couple of times to qualify for state because state is a J and Q, you know? So maybe that is a way you could kind of doubly incentivize it is, yep. You know, if you're going to race club, you, you have to be affiliated with a high school because, because our last club race is the state meet and you need to qualify for that. You know, um, I, I'm not sure like how many people are going to be nixed out of that. I suppose it'd be like your ski club veil. If we have some athletes there who like moved in from Massachusetts and they're literally going to VSSA and skiing for the club team, you know, like, and now it's kind of whatever, you know, like, okay, I don't have a high school, uh, just VSSA. <clears throat> Another solution is these clubs that are academies, they are schools. So, yep, they're a team. They're in it. They're in the state meet. Now, you could say, well, then they're just going to dominate. Maybe. Okay, maybe. You've got, in Minnesota, again, in basketball, we see this a little bit now, like Minnehaha Academy, got some of these private schools where, like, studs are just transferring into, so they're quasi-basketball academies. Hey, they don't win all the time. Like, Eden Prairie is taking them down. I think if you had this happen, um, well, first of all, really, Ski Club Vale would be kind of one of the only ones that you would <clears throat> really have to look at and go, are, are they just going to dominate? you know, let's look at the VSSA athletes, but, but, but Ski Club Vail would only be able to use their VSSA athletes. So like Rose Horning, Adele Horning, some of these other people who go to, if they go to Bad Mountain or Eagle Valley, like they would have to race for their high school team. I don't know. There needs to be a synergy here. I'm not totally sure what the solution is. If, if you don't want to do it, do it that way, where the state meet doubles as a JNQ, you just got to figure out that the, the state meet has to be scheduled, not at the same time as JNQ. Like you can't have that. Okay. The state meet should be a big deal. Everyone should be going to it, period. Okay, took a little bit more time than I wanted to, fleshing out the state meet controversies. But one last thing I want to do here, I'm just going to read off some names here from, uh, these are state Nordic individual champions, 1976 on the girls' side, okay? Pat Jankowski won three times in a row, 76, 77, 78 for Cloquet. <clears throat> I'm not actually sure who Pat Jankowski is. She's probably a legend, and now I'm making myself sound like an idiot. But Cloquet is like this tiny little town near where my wife lives. They have some insane history in terms of Nordic skiing that is quite interesting. So it kind of deserves a little bit of a book of its own. I'll, I'll find some names you, you might recognize here. Chris Hansen, Stillwater, 85, 86, back-to-back. Of course, Jess Diggins' coach, right? 93, 94, 95, three-time champion, Barb Jones. Heard of her? Uh, Olympian, obviously. <clears throat> Going down farther here. Let's go into 2002. They had a classical, a freestyle, and a pursuit champion. Courtney DeWalter won the freestyle and the pursuit. Courtney DeWalter, of course, one of the all-time greatest ultra runners in history. She actually lives in Leadville right now. She won the classical the next year, and in, and she also won the pursuit. So she is a really a three-time Minnesota—oh, four-time, looks like. Pursuit no three. 2002, she won a couple— Wait, why do I see your name four times? Oh, yeah. Each of those years, she won two of them. Okay. Shannon Bergstedt, 04. Now, you might not know her, but she was one of the great runners in Minnesota State High School League history. She actually won a state Nordic ski championship, which is kind of crazy. Let's keep going here. Obviously, we have Jess Diggins. 
and Annie Hart. They duked it out. Diggins won in 07, in 08, in 09, Annie Hart won, and in 2010, Jess Diggins won. So she could have won it four times, but Annie Hart messed it up. Uh, we've had Mara McCuller now, obviously skiing at a high level recently. Those are just a few names on the girls' side. Guys' side, <laughs> you know, it goes back a little bit farther, so there's some people in here. Dave Quinn, of course, that's Don Quinney's brother, 1966. Um, oh, man, I, I know I'm just passing over names, but I'm going kind of fast. In 1980, Todd Boonstra, I believe he was an Olympian. John Bauer in 86, I know he was an Olympian. John Bauer in 87. Uh, Chad Giese from Mora, he's kind of a cool story. He won the state title in 94. Um, continuing on here, let's go down a little bit. There's some, there's, it's amazing some of these names you get. Uh, Garrett Cuzzy, I know he's a skier name I recognize. I'm not really sure from what. Not sure. I think he might have been on the U.S. ski team or U.S. biathlon. Garrett Heath, of course, he has four state championships to his name. He is a um U.S. um Team USA member in running. He never made an Olympic team. He's made multiple world championship teams. You know, he, he his career was in running. He's still a sponsored athlete, I believe, for Brooks. Um, amazing athlete with an amazing career. Ben Saxton's on here. Zach Ketterson, Leo Hip, Zach Ketterson again. Barrett, Garrett Beckrich, he's probably going to be on the U.S. biathlon team eventually. We've got Peter Moore, Henry Snyder, um... Yeah, so lots of legacy here, lots of high-caliber athletes. Uh, again, I'm, I know I'm missing some that I'm sure, you know, leaving out ones that are insane, but that's just a taste. All right, <clears throat> here's another controversy that came up, uh, and I spent the better part of the morning trying to get to the bottom of this, and I'm quite frustrated that I haven't yet. Okay, so um, on Twitter, we had, thank you, by the way, uh, listener, uh, brought this up to me. Local listener in Leadville wanted to know what I thought about the wax controversy at the Olympics because apparently on Twitter, I gotta find the right article here. Someone, uh, it was a Russian athlete, was accused. Here we go. Uh, Russian athlete, uh, Stepanova, was accused by, I think, a Swedish journalist for that, that, that they were cheating. I'll, I'll read the allegations here. It says Russia, Veronica Stepanova denied the allegations she and her team had used C8 waxes. And this is the, the 4x5K. She took aim at Swedish journalist Tomas Pettersson, who made the claim in a newspaper. Pettersson has a well-developed sense of smell. He smells C8 fluoro on my skis, and those of German girls too, from far, far away, even if it's not there, Stepanova said on Instagram. And then she said, I have a suggestion, Tomas, why don't you demand to do a check in my undies in case I hide a motor there? Wow. Crossing the line, Stepanova. No, but, all right, so... um. The response kind of from the German side, uh, Stefan Schwarzbach kind of backed up this denial to make it clear. German Ski Association adheres to all guidelines and rules. We assume this also applies to other nations. Um, race director Pierre McNeary said there was no evidence to support the claim against Germany. I have no reason to believe it. Many people know that Germany glides better and have speculated. <laughs> okay, well, <clears throat> so there's that article, right? I had to trace back a little bit. Here's the frustrating part. Back in January, you might recall this, how this has no information on China's fluorinated wax controls in Beijing. Okay, so just backing us up a little bit. These are some articles that were posted in January. This 
has admitted it's unsure whether the Chinese authorities intend to carry out any controls regarding fluorinated waxes at the Beijing Olympics after coaching staff from the Norwegian Ski Federation were among those who expressed confusion. All right. Um, fluorinated waxes, C8s. The C8s are the ones that were banned. Okay, They've been banned from this event since the beginning of the season due to the health risk and environment concerns. Although the implementation of a fluorine tracker to detect its presence on skis and disqualification punishments is not due to be introduced until 2022-2023. Okay, so basically what, from my understanding is we have no way of monitoring this, but um, they actually ha have it banned. And that's on the FIS website too, is like C8s are banned. So there must have been this discussion with all the coaches, right, in the World Cup. They're like, we're just not going to use that stuff <laughs> because um, they don't have a way of monitoring it. And you can kind of look up some of these different articles where like Chris Grover and others have said, yep, uh, you know, like there was sort of this come to um, agreement moment that we're just not going to use stuff. Uh, I, I pulled up an article. Let me see if I can quick find it. Um, <clears throat> well, anyway, okay, that one. There, there's some quotes here from the, Jury, the Norwegian coach, right? He's saying, the situation is confusing. Like, here's why it's confusing. The ban does not apply in China. So C8s pro are prohibited by the European Union. Well, that doesn't, that doesn't apply to China. And um, the Olympics don't fall under um, FIS. So... Uh, the quote from the Norwegian cross-country manager Espen Bierweg, we have not received any official clarification from FIS about what applies in the Olympics, uh, and we must comply with the rules that will apply in the Olympics. Okay, and then the German cross-country manager Andreas Schluter said he was unsure. In my opinion, the same rules should apply in the Olympics as in the World Cup. Okay. FIS insisted that it was committed to abolishing the use of fluorinated waxes, but said it was unsure whether measures would be in place to prevent their usage in Beijing. Uh, FIS and its member associations are committed to the prohibit prohibition of fluorinated wax products. Okay. Individual ski testing qu consequences are introduced next year. Blah, blah, blah. FIS has no information on whether Chinese authorities intend to carry out any controls regarding fluorinated waxes <coughs> at the upcoming Winter Olympics. I'm trying to find the line that says something about how FIS... This does not. Okay, I gotta find this here. Where is it? Where is it? Okay, well, I'm finding another tabloid here. So that the first one was attacked at the Russian, right, Stepanova, from Swede. But recall, the Swedish journalist was saying he could smell in the German skis too. <clears throat> so the second article says the German, this is from Eurosport, German cross-country skiing team have angrily denied suggestions that their Olympic athletes have been using a banned form of ski wax in Beijing. <clears throat> Sorry, guys. After those successes, okay, that when they won the relay. The Finnish newspaper La Taletti reported that unnamed insiders in the sport were suspecting the Germans of using C8s which was banned last year by FIS because of the negative environmental stuff. Schluter, G team coach, says it's a lie. We don't use C8. We are no longer bringing it with us. What the writing is a lie. Finns must be disappointed over losing out of medals. Okay, then they talk a little bit about wax to explain to the commoner what it is. And then it says, um, use of wax is containing C8. Has it been a hot topic? Chemical is not banned in China. FIS has admitted it was unclear whether any tests would be conducted. Again, kind of confusing. How come FIS can't... I guess FIS doesn't really have any control over what happens at the Olympics. Uh, we normally do not comment... This is uh, 
German Ski Association, the, a member of the board of directors, Schwarzbach. We normally do not comment on anonymous accusations, even more so when they are so outrageous, he told Eurosport. But to make it clear, the German Ski Association adheres to all guidelines and rules, and we assume that this also applies to other nations. Well, here's my problem that I have to say. Um, <clears throat> I was digging for rules. So what, what? From my understanding here, is fist banned C8s, but they never said well, we can't. We can't like ban that at the Olympics, which is why there was this confusion, because they're they're banned in EU countries, not banned in China. China's hosting the Olympics. Are there going to be C8s there? I found nothing. No articles. No rule book manuals. Nothing that said you couldn't use C8s at the Olympics. Now, that's not to say that they didn't have any coaches meeting. They agreed, like, we're not going to use it. It sort of appears that that must have been the case because the German guy's denying it. So the German guy's not going, well, no one ever said we couldn't, you know. <laughs> uh, but but that's almost what I'm left as a journalist trying to do some, like, researching and finding out is, hey, I can't find anything where the Olympic committee or the Olympic organizer said no C8s. Now, that one quote from the race director saying, hey, we have no reason to think that Germany uh, broke the rules or whatever it said. Um, oh man, now I wish I wouldn't have deleted out of that article because it's kind of a funny. It's kind of funny that he says that. It's like we have no reason to think that they cheated. Well, okay, well maybe they didn't cheat. If you didn't make the rule that you can't have C8s, then they obviously didn't. This is all very confusing. So what what it leaves me going is, um, I don't have an opinion on <clears throat> whether or not they did cheat, other than I suppose they could have if it wasn't even cheating. You know, so why is there no straight rule here or more information where they said these are banned? Because I'm struggling to find anything. And there's this is now kind of all over. Yahoo Sport, this is with the Germans, the Swedes, the eyebrow stuff raising. You can find multiple art, articles here. Um, it's all, a lot of the same quotes on Yahoo. Yeah, it's, and, and the Yahoo Sport says using C8 wax was a hot topic leading into Beijing 2022. China has not banned the specific wax, and many critics were wondering how it would be enforced. There's also reports there's no instant testing for wax at the Olympics. We know that. Hmm. And then it just ends with the German guys saying we oh, adhered to all the guidelines. It's frustrating, guys. Like, there's no... I have no information on what the actual rules going to the Olympics were. Here's a story on the Globe and Mail, how an environmental ban on toxic ski waxes prompted an Olympic snow sports arms race. This is looking at um, Alpine as well. Hmm, Trying to find, I couldn't remember if there was something in here. They talk a lot about what C8s are. Um, C8s are the ones banned. Yeah, okay, here's this quote. For the moment, this is the C8 ban, FIS ban C8. For the moment, though, the ban is effectively a voluntary one because proper enforcement is impossible. Oh, yeah, that's the hand sensor device. National sports organizations have signed a pledge not to use C8s, but apparently not everyone is on board. Earlier this month, the Norwegian news service NRK reported that FIS had confirmed the presence of C8s on equipment during a recent competition in Falun that included Norwegian and Swedish Olympians. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's interesting. So everyone had to sign the pack that said, we're not going to cheat. And then they found some. <laughs> so I'm going to look up the Falun results. What happened there? Was that us? Or was that Alpine, I wonder? Falun, Fis, Nordic, Ski results. I can't even remember. Uh, my 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 brain is kind of blanking. I'm sort of feeling like we haven't been to Falun. Did we? Did we go there yet? Cross-country calendar. <clears throat> Don't you love how I'm searching this live while I'm on the air? Let's see if I can find it really fast, though. 
World Cup schedule. Schedule. No, yeah, we haven't been to Fallon. Okay. Hmm. So that was probably Alpine. Alpiners cheating. Not surprising. Okay. Anyway, this is... It's just weird. I don't... Okay, so the AP story about this um, leading into the games, the that, that made it to multiple institutions, including ABC News. No insta-testing for toxic ski waxes. And this is where Chris Grover says, it was supposed to be in effect this season. Unfortunately, the technology would give us on-the-spot testing to make sure that people didn't have fluorocarbons on their skis. This testing just hasn't worked so far. Uh, so they're not able to police the field. Biathlon doesn't have a test. And they talk a little bit about friction, ski waxing, science, and an art. Okay. The Nordic disciplines in particular are a place where after three decades of using fluorocarbons, we really rely on them. No product that really comes close to creating the ski speed that the fluorine does. That's Grover. <clears throat> Continuing on here. Toko. Okay. To this is an interesting quote from Ian Harvey. So in 2020... The ski wax companies, European Union, they entered a group. They would adhere to this new standard, which was reducing or eliminating C8 fluorine and ski waxes. Harvey says, if you want to know the truth, though, this pact is, is on what is being manufactured. The teams have plenty of old technology waxes still around and use it in many cases. <clears throat> um, they can confirm if someone's cheating and using C8s in a lab, but that takes time. Obviously, they're still working on the... Um, the on-site testing. The only area where the C8 chain wax are faster is in very wet snow and longer events. That's from Harvey, which is kind of one of the things where it's like, I, I'm not even sure if this would really help athletes in Beijing. That was actually my initial when the, when um, I heard of this, like, what's your opinion on this? Well, it doesn't seem like it'd be that big a deal um, in Beijing because it was very cold and very dry. But again, so if you were asleep during that entire time i i, I can't find something where the olympics actually said here's our wax rules be interesting if someone knows either from an article from a coach inside sources they could kind of shoot me an email and say oh actually no they did agree to not doing it obviously if there was a rule in place where you can't use these c8s um then then i think <clears throat> we have an issue but I'm just kind of not convinced that this isn't happening sort of everywhere. And this is just the nature of skiing. Like, fast skis um, sort of just bother me in general. I mean, we saw Klabo in the relay when he was going down the hill and pulling away from Manifica. Manifica was working. To me, it's like, this is the part of the sport I just don't like. So I'm really not... I don't have that strong of opinions about the whole wax issue. Because one, you can't really police it. Two, waxes are a, a part of ski speed. But there's a lot of other factors like the skis, quality, the flex, the nature of the grinds, the people running all those operations. Like that's the part that's just kind of annoying is some of these nations have a lot better support. There are a lot smarter people there. So they're just always going to have the faster skis. Like it's kind of more just one element that affects it. And it's not the only one. If it was the nature such that waxes dictated every single aspect of ski speed, I've had a lot, I'd have a lot bigger, stronger opinions about this. But since... Since it's not the only thing, it's like, oh, this is just one of those situations that I don't feel like there's ever going to be a remedy. <clears throat> the nations that care about skiing are always going to, generally speaking, have faster skis. And I'm not really sure there's anything you can do about that. Like, Fisher's never going to give their very best ski, the top, top line one that they 
Um, love, they're not going to ever not give it to Klabo. They're not going to give it to the seventh guy on the Swiss team. They're not going to give it to even the second guy on the U.S. team. So we're always going to be kind of against the grain here. And, and so I think if you get the snowball rolling where like you have success at some of these events where things are more neutralized and then you earn some points and then all of a sudden a ski company gives you that next best pair of skis and you just sort of gradually climb the ranks and now you're Jess Diggins and Solomon probably is giving Jess Diggins their very best skis for sure um, because she's their best athlete. So I, I, I think it's just kind of a generally a problem that I don't even know how you could possibly remedy it. I will say on that point though, is it possible that these Olympics were one of the more unique international events in terms of equalizing that level of competition? The playing field seemed um, less, I guess, contingent upon ski speed. So it wasn't so much like, man, these guys are just nailing the skis. The Finns did seem to have that, I guess. That was kind of like the word on the street. But um, I I don't my eyes never saw like a thing where like Klabo was just gliding away from a person that that actually was like, whoa, maybe Norway really is still killing it with the skis. I think just in general, though, when you have a lot of long climbs, you give someone who has slower skis an opportunity to maybe stay with it. Although some of these descents were also long. So having fast skis, you know, seemed to also would impact it on that side. But you've got dry snow. It's just a little bit more fair. Um, and yeah, I, this is, it's just kind of interesting, right guys? I mean, when you watch, oh, I shouldn't say right. I said I wasn't going to do that. I was writing about how annoying that was in other podcasts. Mm. When I watched the men's four by 10 K relay, one of the thoughts I had was just there. I just refuse to believe that our American men <clears throat> are that much less fit or that much worse of skiers than some of these countries that were beating them by minutes. So I don't know what the issue is, but I just I just don't believe that they are that far away. I don't know why I think it's like that. I mean, if I've watched the Diamond League meets and I'll uh, you'll see like sometimes a really good American 10k runner just get the doors blown off him, he'll lose by a minute to the best Ethiopian or whatever. For some reason I don't really have a problem with that. I'm like, "Well, yeah, that Ethiopian's just that much better." It seems more like observable you can just you you watch it and you're going well there's there isn't any other element at play other than what that person's body can do there's no equipment element there's no none of that so i don't know that that was the thought i had it was just kind of stinging like huh on the one hand i feel like these conditions are equalizing everyone but on the other hand our american guys are so far behind what's the deal here so i guess i'm sort of at a loss because uh, I really did want to think like, huh, as much as I don't like these, this Olympic venue and a lot of things about it, it seems like it's equalizing people and that's sort of exciting. But on the other hand, we're still not like hitting the skis, I guess. I don't know. Sort of sad. Um, I've gotten way away from my show program notes and I think it's not good here because I need to get back on track. Okay, so where I wanted to kind of look next here, I've got an article from the NRK. This, um, oh, maybe I shouldn't do this one first, actually. Uh, Quickly, this was about NRK uh, wrote an article. Looks like it came out, ooh, where's the date? Where's the date? Today. No, February 19th. Uh, Norwegian Olympic preparations, brutal downturn, no point in explaining it away. 
So we've been talking a little bit about the altitude preparations and all that effect. And so one quote, a couple quotes I wanted to hit on from this article. Basically, the whole the whole gist of it was, you know, Norway did not perform as well as they had hoped. Uh, could their preparation have been tweaked? One thing that Oli Einar uh, Bjorndalen was saying was it surprised him. They have so much knowledge. Basically, here in Norway, they have physiology. Uh, they have that physiological advantage in terms of research, and that's definitely true. Um, and he says they have extreme knowledge. They just didn't use it. So um, some pushback there from the coaches, basically saying the way the world was, there's not a lot they could have done. So they didn't really – they weren't able to execute what they had hoped kind of because – of COVID. And then finally, the third point I, I found somewhat interesting here is the acknowledgement of Russia doing so well. Um, and, and actually, in this article, the Russian coach, his name, uh, Yegor Sorin, he said somewhat humorously that the Russians train more, maybe in harder conditions. I definitely think that that is not a, something to be taken lightly. I mentioned it on the last show that um, that perhaps more, even than preparing for what it's like to race and pace at altitude just being able being prepared to race and um, compete in really harsh conditions cold wind and slow snow i guess the way i see it is if you are v2ing up a hill a long grind climb at sea level versus the exact same climb the same steepness and length at altitude you might for example have to switch to a easier technique at altitude because you have less oxygen or whatever but I don't know if you have ever gone out and skied in really slow snow and, and think about how that has affected your cycle rate, cycle times, and then technique choice as a result. But I think that's something these these athletes who compete in Central and Northern Europe most of the time on pretty fast, moist, uh, moist conditions, they're not really all that used to like all of a sudden their, um, their push-off in a skate, right? a skate push-off is rendering them like two feet you know or two meters instead of 15 um and so now they're they're having to be more aggressive they're not they're not able to even point their skis down the track the same way uh the same angles as as they can when it's really fast well and in doing that they've now changed their body position so even just the slight minutia of changes that are occurring here because the snow is is slower is going to hit a different muscle than it would when it's fast i mean even the limited amount of time I've spent skiing on really fast snow and a lot of the time I've spent skiing on slow snow, your body is sore in different places when you're skiing on fast snow just because there are certain things that, that even change just a little bit. And and I think the cycle rate, um, you know, the cycle length, all those things, the, even the pole forces are going to look just a little bit different. And, and by not just like the person can't put pole force through the ground, but but the the extremely detailed metrics of those pull forces when is the force being executed how much of it at certain times the time of um the the ground contact following through on that each phase of the polling how the forces are distributed differently in slow snow i think all of that is is just kind of wildly different not that it's a completely different sport and i was actually a bit shocked when they would you know you'd see the screens just how the wind was whipping and the snow looked just brutal and then people were still moving gliding well relatively speaking you know i think if a lot of us went out there in our beater old skis it would have been hilarious to watch just how grippy and dry perhaps that snow was maybe maybe we're off of that i mean 
maybe it was just a bizarre climate too, where it looked insanely windy and dry and cold. But but if you compared it to you know Fargo, Moorhead, <laughs> January fourth kind of a thing, or oh, we get this up in Leadville too. I mean, I I should jokingly say honestly. Best thing these guys could have done was is come to Leadville and train at the golf course, you know, midweek. Uh, Dan does an amazing job of grooming it. There's no doubt, but sometimes you just can't even stop. It sits there exposed in a valley. Some of the wind gets whipped into those tracks. You just have insanely slow conditions. That That's what I kept thinking about. It was like, wow, we're tough here because we train at the Mount Massive golf, golf Course every once in a while. There's my shout-out, Mount Massive Golf Course here. Hmm. Okay, one one topic down. Let's keep moving. Slow skis. Speaking of that, talk to my mom. <clears throat> I don't, she doesn't really listen to the podcast, which is kind of sad. I guess Devin Kershaw says his mom listens to the podcast. I, my mom doesn't listen to my podcast, I don't think. Uh, sometimes she reads my articles on cedarskier.com. She is subscribed. You can subscribe, you know, just like join the list, and then every time we post something, you'll get it. It's, it's pretty cool. I've got like 50 subscribers there. Um, anyway, she was all upset about her performance at the Mora Vassalopit. I want to give a shout out to my mom right now. She's, well, let's see how old she was born, 1962. So 60 years old. <clears throat> well, she'll be 60 years old, March 21st. Honey, write that down. We got to make sure we do some celebration. Um, She signed up for her first ski race in a long time. You know, she, she skied pretty competitively in her high school days. So, you know, late 70s, early 80s, even a bit. Um, a good classic strider. Very, very good runner, um, and back in that, back in the day, the way skiing was, um, very talented. You know, if someone had swooped in and caught my mom at the right time and and, and kind of brought her into the college scene, she could have been a very good collegiate skier in the in the eighties. I mean, every element of her um, physiological gifting fits cross country skiing. Um, she has. Uh, an enormous upper body strength to weight ratio. You know, even when she was 45, 50 years old and she'd be training at Cormax, my mom could always do like 12 pull-ups. She'd get mad if she was like not double digits, um, that kind of a thing, you know, very strong core, um, obviously incredibly tough mentally, um, weather issues like that, just no, no fright at all. As far as that goes, she has a little bit of an Alpine background in terms of like big mountain skiing, double black diamonds and stuff. She still does that too. So I, I, again, I think like she has a ton of talent for Nordic skiing and obviously just been out of racing for a long time. Things have changed. Um, I was able to coax her into signing up for this more of Oslopit, which is a very flat classic ski course. Very good for double polling. Well, long story short, they had insanely cold conditions there. The race started, and she said, I think it was like negative seven. I'm pretty shocked they even actually sent the race off. Um, she had a little too much sticky on her grip. And and I kind of tried to, you know, suggest that, hey, maybe what you should do is just wax up dad skis, kind of extra grippy if you're nervous. Start on yours. See how much you can double pull. You're you're going to be able to make one of the, of the laps, right? Get through 24K, and then... If you're really dying, switch into something with more grip. It, it, dad's skis will work fine. So her, her skis just really didn't work for her. She had really um, poor performing skis relative to the competition. Still did really well. I think her time was 3 hours and 37 minutes in, in those slow conditions. It was a 48K, not a 42. Um, she was the second in her age group, and the winner was 321 in her age group. Um, I mean, I think that's ski speed right there. If she, if she would have just had a normal pair of skis, she probably beats that person 
maybe even by a fair, fairly large margin. This is based off my reports, too. I mean, she was having instances where, like, she's almost striding down hills and still trying to double pull everything, which when you're double pulling and really slow stuff, that's hard on your elbows and your shoulders. It's just, it's a nightmare. Um, So kudos to my mom there. But in the conversation kind of back and forth, one thing that came came across and came up, and I thought I should bring this up in the podcast, is this this idea that she really didn't have someone she could totally relate to, except for me, when it came to, you know, the brutality of living in Fargo and having brutally awful weather, but then on top of that, no even just real grooming. And and when people are walking through the woods, they call that cross-country skiing. You know, it's just so far away from uh, a cross-country ski culture, and she's living in, in that situation. And... And how kind of tough that is. And so there's a lot of days, you know, she's out and skiing for an hour and the snow is so slow. You know, she says she she's getting grip like with her skate skis kind of a thing. And, uh, and I've been there and felt that and you just feel alone and, and like you want to cry into the snow. And I think everyone who has been serious in almost in any sport, but but probably for sure cross country skiing has been at that point where they maybe were even wondering why they stepped out the door in the first place. And then the first couple of, you know, 30 seconds of your workout, you're like, yeah, why did I do this? The snow stinks. The wind is whipping in my face. I I feel terrible. I feel weak. I feel just, you know, there's no way I'm going to be able to complete this. No one cares. And and I'm doing this weird sport where I'm dressed in in spandex and made fun of. And it's just not fair. Like life's not fair. Oh, woe is me kind of a thing. And, And it is a real woe is me. Um, and so, uh, how much character, this is kind of the thing I want to bring up is like, think about how much character being a Nordic skier, uh, uh, being a Nordic skier, how much character that really does build on so many different levels. Um, and I tried to encourage her and say, good for you to get out there and do this. She had had a day where she skied for four hours out at Maple Log and, and the situation here was, you know, again, Fargo's terrible, 45 minutes away. Um, Maple Log, great resort, right? Um, but it's it, it's not like every time you go to Maple Log, you're going to have a, a, a perfect day. And she went there when it was zero degrees, but she had put down her 25 bucks, kind of like, you know, I never treat myself, ever. She is the most selfless person that I've ever met. And and to a fault, to the point where I, I have to often say, like, Mom, you need to prioritize what you need so you're a better person, so you can serve others better, that kind of, that kind of a situation. But, um, you know... So she puts down her money. She she makes the trip out and 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 kind of realizes, oh my gosh, what have I done? I paid twenty five bucks. It's kind of a crappy day, but this is just what I have. This is just my life. This is my lot in life. Yeah, Ryan's in Leadville. He's got perfect snow every day and blah blah blah. Post pictures of Instagram. It's sunny and twenty eight in Leadville. How is it so perfect? He's on snow two hundred days a year, and that's just not fair. And here I am, and and well, I paid my money, so I'm gonna I'm gonna force out four hours and. And the snow was slow and her skis weren't working and she couldn't climb the hills, but then they weren't gliding on the downhills. It was just, you know, your nightmare situation. And, and I was kind of like, hey, mom, those are the things that make you tough, though. You, you got out four hours? Like, I, I don't even ski more than three hours, maybe like a couple times a year, you know? That's that's hard for me in one shot. Uh, yeah, Ashley, do you have something to say? I We're not talking about the German relay team again, okay? You, you interrupted my rant. <clears throat> okay, so... Like, hey, that builds that builds toughness, and and here you are, you were standing on the line, your first race in forty years, and you were nervous because you felt out of place, and you felt like, 
um, here's wow, here's these young people and these fit people, and oh, they're they're wearing these clothes, and I don't have the right gloves. I'm just in kind of my like bulky farm clothes. I I I don't fit in. I'm wearing a a vest that's not like you know the Nordic culture, and I was just kind of like, oh man, I know exactly how you feel. You know, when when I was in Maine and coming from running and coaching that one year, like pr- learning through embarrassment that like, oh, I guess the Nordic culture does this or looks this way or you talk like this or wear these things. And and here's here's who I am, you know, and and you got to learn the etiquette and in race and race etiquette, ski every every type of etiquette, not just literally in the race, but just kind of, you know it's intimidating to walk into that for the first time. So I just felt for my mom. And I know my mom has these same things that I would have carried as well. We're very similar in, you know, not having that rhino skin, that tough exterior, you know, taking things personally. So probably feeling more bad about yourself than even the average person would in that situation. And, and I just kind of was like, you know, I remember being there and you have to have a few races where, um, your skis are crappy. And it's a suffer fest. And you know what? That's going to happen even if you race for the next 10 years and you do 10 races a year. You're just going to have some of those days. So that's to be expected. Um, but you also are going to have to kind of go through that learning curve of, um, you know, that first race back where someone chews you out. Or you step on their pole and they cuss at you and then you feel like an awful person for the rest of the day. Or you take a turn too sharp and go off into the bank. These are all things, by the way, that happened in the 2018 Alley Loop, if you uh, are wondering. So... I just, I, I could feel that so much. And, and what does that do to you as a person, you know, going through some of that sort of social fire, athletic fire. And I just told her, it's like these days where you go out now after the race and you do your four hours at Maple Log, you're going to come back to the starting line next year with a little more confidence. And then the next year you're going to come back because you did a few more races instead. And pretty soon you're going to look at those people that kind of scared you and you're going to think, I'm tougher than this person. You know, I, they did, th- that person did not go out for the four hours in that negative three day when the snow was terrible and the skis weren't working. And you're going to look at that person and feel confident. And you're going to move up a few lines at the start. You're not going to start in the back. You're going to start in the third line. Um, And you're going to, you're going to know. And, and when you're halfway through the race and people are either going by you or you're passing people, you're, you're going to stay even keeled and know where you're at and what you can do and have some confidence in your strengths. And, um, and when you see some of those young guns out there dressed in their fancy high school uh, uniforms that they're wearing, even though they're 22, or it's a former collegiate athlete wearing his, or it is a current collegiate athlete, you're just going to go, yeah, that's where they are, but this is where I am. And sure, maybe they're really athletic and they raced on the NCAA circuit, but you know what? I bet they, I bet they didn't have to make themselves go train um, 900 hours or 1,000 hours or 700 hours or 500 hours on their own. They had a coach that was saying, this is the program, you go do it. They had a team that was bringing them out the door. I had to do that by myself. And that's what you're going to tell yourself. And you're going to have more confidence in your mental strength than that person does. And these are all those things that when you, you know, skiing can teach you these things. Sometimes when you're coddled within a program, you actually don't get that stuff. These are things that um, those of you out there listening, where you're like, it resonates with you. Yeah, that was me, you know, and I would give, I give my right arm to be able to go back in time and be on a collegiate team so that I could have had that benefit. Maybe you would, but you know what I've, I've kind of realized is maybe I wouldn't, I would not be the same skier I am today if I had gone to Montana State University and been brought through their program and skied for them or gone to Dartmouth or even gone to a St. Olaf and had a a collegiate or Wyoming, you know, the USCSA. I would not be the same person and not have the same relationship with skiing that I do. And, And you see this play out. 
you see NCAA athletes who leave and they're burned out. You see high school athletes sometimes even who are burned out. They never, they don't want to ski again. Or they come back to skiing when they're 33 and they're like, you know, maybe I should try that. They enter into the Berkey, they're in the elite wave, or they're in wave eight, and there's a bunch of drunk Wisconsin, Scotties back there, you know, blasting music from their hip. And they're like, wow, is this what skiing is? This actually isn't that, that great. I, I don't know why I'm out here, you know? And so for those of you out there who that's not you and you came to it late and, you know, you are someone who now gets excited about setting those annual goals and trying to train more or train better, trying to sign up for races and do them well, even if there's only 10 people like we have sometimes in Colorado, you know, and and even when you don't do as well as you want it or you get you get the doors blown off you by some guy who, also, you know, is kind of a no name. It's, it's OK, right? When you get your blows door not door. You know what I'm trying to say. You get you get undressed, like Devin would say. <clears throat> it's one thing if you get undressed by, you know, Zach Ketterson at a at a marathon because he decided to just hop in it randomly. But it's another thing when you get undressed by a guy who you find out is kind of like you, and you're like, oh, wow, maybe I'm not that special. What am I doing here? No, no, no. You got to put those thoughts to bed. Well, it's okay to have any thoughts, but you got you got to contextualize them and and realize. That or not get discouraged by them. Don't let them kick you out of the out of the sport. Don't let them kick you out of the mentality that why am I even doing this? Is this really worth it? Is it or is it just stupid that I have a training journal and I'm and I'm sixty years old or I'm forty five years old or I'm thirty one? Is it dumb that I have got a training journal? And I keep track of these things and I'm trying to be serious and I get excited. No, like at the end of the day, though that's beautiful. Like that, that is a beautiful side of our sport. Our people, you know, I'm not even going to say master blaster. That's, that's what collegiate skiers call us. But no, it's like, these are the guys who love this sport, right? You guys in college or you people who are 18 or 16 and you're fighting for the JNQ spot and you're, or you're fighting for an NCAA spot. Great. Go for it. That's awesome. You should take advantage of those, of those opportunities because in, in a, in a little while you're going to be off that you're going to be out on your own like us. And we'll see what you're made out of then. We'll see if you get out of bed. We'll see if you keep striving for greatness then. We'll see what your we'll see what your um, where you place the importance of striving for success then. <clears throat> you know, when you're 23, when you're 25, when you're 29, when you're 39. And this isn't some sort of a a call of. So if you're 39 years old and you don't have any athletic drive or purpose or goal that am I not living my life right? That's not necessarily that. But I would I would tend to argue actually, maybe this is too intense, but I would tend to argue if you don't have something that you really care about and that you are really striving for success and you are constantly honing those skills of striving for success, you might want to look in the mirror because I guess what I've always thought in my philosophy of sport is the reason that it's valuable to strive for success in a sport is because ultimately you want to have the skill set to strive for success in things that ult- that really matter, like being a parent or like being a husband or a wife or, or in your other job. <clears throat> so I've sort of thought, I used to think that, yeah, I'm going to take this seriously because then when I get into the real world, I'll be, I'll be, know how to set goals. I'll know how to be disciplined. I'll know how to work hard in my job, you know, behind a desk or whatever I'm doing. Now I sort of feel like that's true, but you can't just throw that out once you get that job behind the desk. You have to continually sharpen those skills. It's something you do for a lifetime. 
that's been something that's sort of developed with me. And the reason I've sort of, I guess, thought about that philosophy of life or, or embraced it at least is I do sort of recognize some of my uh, friends or, or coworkers or whatever who were former athletes and then they gave that up like most people do, you know, once they're out of college, um, their tenacity in their job is a reflection of that level uh, or that lack of now, um, you know, ability to set goals, work hard, et cetera in in athletics they, they gave that up in athletics and now they're becoming more lazy in their in their other parts of life in other words um you you might not you might disagree and go oh, i don't know if i really see that like i see some people who are still really intense in their in their job as a lawyer or in their in their job as a stockbroker or a journalist or whatever it may be uh, they, they seem pretty intense they're not they're not a sport so i don't know what you're talking about but but i would say if you kind of un- unpeeled the layers and got to their core you would realize that no you know the reason that they kind of gave up that sport, either they flamed out and were burned out or whatever, that that's a piece of them too. Being burned out by something, I guess I'm trying to think like if there was if there's something in my life where that is I've experienced that. Like where I was so intense with something and, and just so geared in for striving for success that, that then I hit a point where I just kind of woke up and was like, I'm sick of this. I hate this, right? I, I've given up things, but I, I've never been burned out. I've made conscious choices to be intentionally driven in other areas of my life and had to give up things in the process. I genuinely feel though, like most people kind of go through life getting burned out and then having to pivot to other things or you know life becomes so crazy they have to quit things quitting is different than going what do i really want with my life and being and then driving yourself towards that and in the process going i, I don't have time for this but i am i am intentionally going to give that same effort that I gave towards that, towards this. And by golly, I still love that other thing, whether it's my trumpet career for me or, you know, music. That was something I was incredibly driven for. I would not say I was burned out by that at all. Um, although that would be the thing I was probably closest. So now, mom, if you are listening to that, I can understand why you go. Ryan, what about your trumpet playing? All right, that was a kind of a nice grip wax nation. Hopefully an inspiring to some of you out there. And, and this occurred to me as I was driving Enoch, the Sprinter van, to Denver. I was, you know, thinking deep thoughts as I'm going through the Eisenhower Tunnel. And I, it just kind of struck me, you know, how there, there's been times this season for me, my race season, where I finished a race and thought that result wasn't what I had dreamed for and what I had hoped for. And because of that, because it wasn't what I had hoped for, it's tempting to go, well, maybe I should just give this all up then. And then you, you realize how silly that is because you think, if I had won this race, if I won the Seeley Hills Classic and, and I had out-sprinted Ian Torchia, even on my crappy skis, and then got to the end and it was just this parade, would, would that have all of a sudden made um, everything that I do worth it? But since I got ninth or whatever and I just kind of disappeared into anonymity, that, that makes it not worth it. It, w- it was hard. I had, I had to grapple and go, okay, for me, I can, I can bring this back to my faith. I can bring this back to a, almost a theology of work uh, grounded in scripture, something I, I hold, I'm holding fast to. My whole life is staked on it. 
and and it and it applies directly to everything I'm doing. And then I realized I was like, but what if that wasn't the case? What if I was someone who just loves skiing and loves training? I'm I'm Ryan Cedarquist without this firm foundation of faith. What then? Would, would this be a depressing moment, a depressing realization, this depressing epiphany as I'm driving through the Eisenhower Tunnel? And it, and it struck me, and I was like, okay, let's. Yes, obviously, I would love. I love it if people came up to me and go, you know, I just I've, I've been struck by the this discussion you've had about faith, and and I I, I want to talk more about it. That'd be great. But I also think there is something to be said, even apart from a faith, in a, in addressing this issue and go, no, like. You obviously don't want to get to your life, the end of your life, and realize that you were living one training cycle to the next and you were just lost in this meaningless drubble of, of nothing. And and to have that realization come when you're 67, you know, kind, kind of the realization I had just yesterday. You don't, you don't want to have that at 67 and then go back, oh my gosh, I've done nothing of meaning for 30 years. So it's something you want to think about. But it's not something that needs to discourage you. It's not something that, that you need to go, yeah, wow, that's me. Like I've been fourth at a race, second at a race, 20th at a race, way not performing the way I want to, not not ever giving, getting recognized for my hard work. And, and, and yeah, that's me. Maybe I should just give this up now. It's like, no, 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 no. There is something beautiful about the excitement that you have, that those people have about in June, sitting down and taking out a, a piece of notebook paper and going, what are the races I want to do? And setting up a calendar, getting excited about that and and pretending that you are, you know, a, a Visma Ski Classic skier or, or that you are trying to set up a, a, a race calendar that looks like a World Cup schedule and you're going to do a 10K here and a 20K skate here and you're going to challenge yourself here. And maybe in the summer, you're going to try and, um, you know, road bike to the top of Mount Evans three times and see if you can get faster, you know, and 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 there is a beautiful side of athletics that um, we preach a lot, but then oftentimes we just give up. We need people out there who are warriors for that. I think people who are not recognized at awards podiums, people who are um, maybe never going to earn money from this, people who might not even write books about their their feelings on this or talk about it, but but are just out there grinding because that those are the people that you know, are not, are not worthless. They're, they're, and they're not in, in the whole leader follower dichotomy or, or continuum. Those are, those are the followers, the faithful followers who are doing all those core principles that the leaders are preaching. And, and when they do it and they find value and they find some happiness and they go, yeah, I didn't waste my life. I, I, I went for these goals and, and part of the, part of the thing that gave those years value was the excitement from just chasing those and it brought me to different parts of the world and it it was a constant challenge for me i never stopped stretching myself physically mentally intellectually um because of what this sport was in my life um and so if you're someone who's been kind of sitting on the sidelines and you are you know, maybe you haven't raced in 20 years. Maybe you haven't raced in three years. Maybe you've been racing the last 20 years. And you're about to give it up. I think this message is for you to go, all right, evaluate what what's meaningful to you. Evaluate what excites you, and 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 um, and find for yourself the the deepest, the deeper purpose and meaning. And if and if it is a theology of work like you got here, we we got skiologians. We talk about that a lot, and I've written about that a lot. I'm not gonna lie, like that's that is something that is not arbitrary and not not able it doesn't it doesn't fluctuate 
So if you're someone who's maybe been challenged and questioning and you're like, oh man, I, I used to be able to say this was meaningful for this reason, but now I'm sort of feeling shaken, um, you know, maybe you are someone who, who wants to go back and read some of those articles I've written or, or pick up a Bible, you know, but this is, this is drifting a little bit too in the, in the skiologians area. So I guess I better wrap that up. I should make a, make a whole another show about it. But, uh, yeah, this was, this was the topic I just wrote down in the, in the show, but like, what is skiing teaching you? Um, and, and by the way, if you're curious, the skiologians, the cedar skier van, it's in good shape. However, we got the oil change. Okay. It's in good shape. It's been taking us on adventures. We do need to get a new water pump. I've been leaking some antifreeze. And it hasn't been terrible, but it's kind of one of those things I do routinely check. And my mechanic, Mike, who's the man, big van repair, give him a little shout out. Um, he He's kind of like, well, you know, I don't think you have to replace it now. But, you know, then he tells me this story about a guy who didn't replace it and it blew up when he was in the middle of the Eisenhower tunnel. And so he had to get through the tunnel and then pull off to the side and do who knows what to get his van to safety. And I was like, well, that's a little unnerving. Like, I hope that doesn't happen to me. And he's like, no, 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 you're fine. He knows that I'm kind of paranoid. And um, maybe he just didn't want to, like, have me stay overnight and then have him fix it the next day. But we're going to go fix it the next week. But, yeah, he kind of gave me those reassuring words. Like, well, it's either going to – it's either going to – you're not going to notice it for the next six months or it's going to come to fruition here in six minutes. (laughs) Great. Awesome. All right. See you, bike as I take my 120-mile, 6,000 vertical feet climb back to Leadville from, you know, basically Commerce City. (laughs) It's either going to blow in six months or six minutes. Excellent. So we're getting that fixed hopefully before we head home for the Midwest tour. Um, I'm looking down here at the notes. What, what else do we got? Oh, how important is equipment in the wax room? Oh, yeah. Yeah, my mom and I, she, she thinks I'm like, you know, Zach Caldwell when it comes to making fast skis. And he, I have to always reassure that I pretty much know nothing. And if I have fast skis, it's because I'm lucky. Um, but also, you know, the, the brief time I spent in Norway watching them prep skis was very enlightening. And it kind of made me realize just how um, helpful it is to have working tools. They every Everyone had a rotor brush, like the, the drill with all the different brushes. That was everyone. Like I stayed at three or four houses and every house had like a dedicated room for waxing skis too. But in that room, they had all that stuff. So I don't know, out there, you people who are listening to the show, do you have like dedicated rooms and then all the different kind of brushes and all these things? Maybe that's my problem. I've got like two brushes and I'm struggling to figure out how to clean them. So if you got some tips, I've, I've tried to like run through the, my, my scraper through the brushes many, many times, kind of get that old wax out. And I think that has helped quite a bit, but I don't know how much. So like, am I throwing all these bad chemicals into my good ski? I don't know. It's kind of scaring me, you know, uh, <laughs> but I know you need to get some tools and that's a big thing, but just kind of question I'm posing out there, like how important is equipment in the wax room and what's kind of the most in, in, important one to have that you might not think, uh, for me personally, I would say having a good uh, scraper sharpener is important and having good brushes is, is important. Like you can up your game tremendously with those things. Um, the the structure tools, I would say that's kind of the next big investment you might want to have. Um, but obviously don't not supplementing that until you've sort of taken your skis into someone who really knows what they're doing and gone, this is where I live. These are my goals. This is my fleet. How should I stone grind them? Blah, blah, blah. I've just kind of resigned myself to the fact that I'm never going to be able to have access to all of the really fancy powders that probably make a big difference. 
So I got to do everything I can with grinds because that's something I can maybe budget for. Maybe you're out there thinking the same thing. I don't know. Um, And that was another point I was going to bring up actually on this show was just what's it sort of like to hit the point in citizens racing where you feel like every time I step on this line, I'm the fittest person there, but I just can't possibly beat people who have a team of support so they have a whack staff or you know team berkey even or it's a guys like pioneer midwest has some you know some help not like a full they don't have a team obviously but like it's going to be hard to to have faster skis than matt leaps <laughs> like at any given race you go to sorry sorry matt that's not meant to be like you know you know what you're doing to make fast skis i'm coming your way at some point this summer <clears throat> but that's a little bit how i felt when i went to the midwest in at least one of the races was I think looking at the eight people in front of me, I had to kind of go, hey, this isn't so bad. I mean, I I put myself in the hole by by double pulling this whole course, which was not a smart decision. But um, at the end of the day, the people who were in front of me had help. At, at least all of them, except for I think there was a Russian guy who was like 41 and beat me. I don't know. He probably had help from the Russians, though. You know, <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah, that that's something I'm kind of struggling with a little bit. Oh, man, huge talking point I got to bring up here. This is, I, I'm sort of ripping through some of these things. Here's a question. You can ponder it. I'll, I'll give us a, a sort of a tease here. Do you think athletes under 29, and I, I chose that age really intentionally so I would not lump myself in there. Do you think people under the age of 29 are less resilient when it comes to athletics? Um, we talk so much about mental health. This is really becoming a big like buzzword in athletic circles. And I'm thinking, you know, Simone Biles, at this recent Olympics, Michaela Schifrin and um, you know, other athletes who have had successes too at the Olympics have talked about this importance too. But but I and I won't say all the names of people that I've talked about. But almost every athlete I've interviewed has talked about mental health. Snowboard cross athletes, moguls athletes, they all talk about it. Here's here, a couple of things here. First of all, I think there's a difference between mental skills and mental strength and mental health. And I think right now the prevailing sports psychology literature would sort of disagree with me they would say all those things are sort of in in intertwined and i guess it's sort of one of those things for me that two things could be true at once in the sense that yes i think your mental skills and mental strength are intertwined with your overall mental health but i also think you could be very weak with mental skills like imagery rehearsal um uh their focus right but you could also have a healthy overall well-being of i'm confident in who i am i i'm not like being thrown by every wave um, and wind in the seat. And so I feel like, and I don't know a ton, Dr. Zuliger, if you're out there, a sports psychologist, Adam State, right? Um, if you if you are someone trying to help an athlete and you're sort of mixing all those things together, health, skills, and strength into one, I don't think that's helpful. I think sports psychologists, and if I had a, a daughter, you know, Novi, if she was, I want to get some help here, I would definitely try to vet that person to, okay, fine, you can focus on mental skills and mental strength, but guess what? Mental health, I don't want you touching that because my daughter is going to be taught to feel grounded in something that you are not going to give her unless you are a Reformed Christian who believes the Bible is sola scriptura, right? Something like that. So for me, I sort of think that this undergirding foundation that is mental health is something that is sort of separate. 
Now, my original posing question, are athletes sort of in this new millennial under 29, are they just less resilient? That's a little more with mental skills and mental strength, but it's also partially that mental health component, which is why I think right now sports psychologists are just making bank because we've got all these people growing up in the coddle generation um, and now in elite sport, and they need help because they've got no foundation for their mental health. And on top of that, maybe their mental skills are not that great. <laughs> um but but what I've noticed is many athletes who are focusing on build, improving their mental skills and mental strength, those attributes, they're finding success because that's a real part of performance. Okay? It is. And if you're so old school that you don't think that is true, um, you're just wrong. And also, you, you are probably someone who benefited from mental skills and mental strength without really realizing it. Because that can happen too. You, you might not actually acknowledge or identify the fact that you have used rehearsal techniques before races or during races, that you've used self-talk, that you actually are just naturally very focused on singular things, that you actually can focus on what you can control. You know, all these different aspects of mental strength that are very cool, interesting to learn about. You might be the person who just kind of was lucky and you, you were able to use many of those things. And now you're and sorry. My, that's probably my dad, honestly. You know, like he had a lot of tools for success that I think a lot of them he wouldn't have even been able to acknowledge or recognize because he just didn't he, he didn't he didn't like tangibly observe them and go, oh, I am doing this and this is causing this to happen. He's, he's pretty old school. OK, but um, the mental health side, I think, is definitely more that we are growing up in this place where um there's obviously a lot of reasons that I think our younger people would have poor, I don't know, res resilience. One of them, though, well, one of them is social media. Okay, kids, I kids, I think just kind of have in general a little weaker minds, like when it comes to everything, stamina, endurance, etc. Like their mental faculties aren't as developed as people who grew up in like the 20s and 30s went through the Great Depression and, and you know, grew up reading by candlelight even or whatever, <laughs> you know, farmers out in Iowa who just like built this country out of hard work. Those people having have a, just a better endurance stamina, mental faculties are more developed. And, and so social media, technology in general, that's kind of hurt us in one way. And maybe that's the main cause. I think there's a, definitely another element, though, where we've got kind of the helicopter parents, the coddler parents. We've created a system, essentially, where the only athletes who make it to the top, to the Olympics, whatever, are specialized at a young age. I know that's not everyone. Okay, but it's it's heading in that direction where it pretty it pretty easily could become that. Um, and and don't give me the crap of like, oh, I didn't specialize my kids, you know, like I had them doing a lot of different sports. Yeah, maybe. But like even in the pipeline curriculum, it's have them do all these other sports so that they can be amazing at mogul skiing or so that they can be amazing at Nordic skiing or Nordic combine. Like it's just bizarre how how. Um, we have to write this in that in, we've I named and identified age stages from like two to five. That's a stage now. It's like you should make sure your kids are experiencing many different activities and exposing that. It's like exposing them to all sorts of different things and letting them learn how to do things for fun and and play like activities. It's like, no, you're like just in other words, raise them the way a parent should raise them, you know, <laughs> like have fun playing. Um, and we've created this system, though, where if if you think about it. Some of these athletes probably haven't felt the same, um, I, I won't say failure, because it's pretty rare that an athlete is the best, you know, it hasn't lost all through their training, even if they are in an academy at the youngest possible age, they've probably lost. <laughs> so maybe, maybe Michaela Schiffer literally didn't. I mean, she she was a pretty unbelievable prodigy. 
But the point being is, it's not just the fact of losing. It's 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 more that even those people at some of those academies who maybe lost, they're still in a place where they're on a fast bullet train track to world-class athletics, and they never were in the real world walking around and having to like consciously choose to hop on that track. So, you know, the Russell Couriers who grew up in Maine and he kind of came to biathlon pretty late and started from humble beginnings. All of a sudden he's 14 years old and it's like, dude, you could like make this, maybe make the Olympics. That's never happening anymore. And you don't have people who can contextualize the jump they've made. So they're just they're almost living in a fantasy world. And, and this is not uh, something I would have thought about, honestly, until I started talking to some of these athletes too. You just sort of get this like, I don't know, like there is a legitimate gap and chasm between the regular old folk and the beautiful people. And yes, they're still humans, but because we've sort of sheltered them into this weirdly constructed environment where the singular focus in the world is like them becoming an Olympian or them winning gold medals. Uh, they, they're not really able to handle that limelight because what is required to handle the limelight when you do fail is really old school, organic personality traits. That's the stark difference. So when you are someone like Jim Ryan, who grew up in rural Kansas and you, and you, you know, yes, you're an, the maybe the most prodigious running talent of all time in all of human history. When you start where you start there, even when you go to Mex- the Mexico City Games, you're 18 or however old he was, you know, and I think he got a silver when he was like 19 years old, but then Munich, you know, favorite to gold, falls out, doesn't even compete in the final. Uh, 76 did not go his way either. Y- you you move on with your life because what you're what you're standing on is those are those roots. And I'm starting to wonder if the roots are just not even present for some of these athletes who are at the elite, elite level. One difference where the country that might do this a little bit differently is Norway, because even their elite athletes kind of all started in the same place. They all started going out for skis on Sunday because that's what you do in Norway. And that's what you've done since 1870. Oh, that reminds me. I haven't read my excerpt from um, the Ryan Rogers book. I have to say that for another time. Um, So. There's a thought. I, I think maybe I'm opening a whole new can of worms in terms of like, well, how do we raise up these young kids, you know, and what should sport programs look like? But I, I guess I'm just kind of thinking there, there's, a, there's a lot of things there, right? That uh, mental health, mental skills, should we differentiate, provide distinction for them? I think we should. But number two, we might need to like back way up and go, why is it that we have all these athletes coming out here and they're kind of like bringing up this mental health thing and then we're celebrating them for it, which nothing really wrong with them being human. I don't have a problem with that. Like, I think that's kind of unique. It's unique times and it's okay. Honestly, actually, I'll say this. Schifrin's responses to the media were were awesome. And some of it was because of the content she said and some of it was more just... I feel so much like the average person was just kind of thrust into Michaela Schiffer's thing. She was not saying any like cliches. She wasn't being reserved and like not showing cards. It was everything was just flashed out there. And that's kind of how Michaela is. It, you, sometimes she'll just kind of start rambling on too. It's beautiful though. I love it. Uh, but there's still this issue of, huh? You know, even Michaela, I think because she was so successful at such a young age, I don't think she actually has as much of a grasp on what the real world's like as she probably thinks she does. Um, 
and probably most athletes think they do. And honestly, I don't blame them. I think that's kind of the society's fault, their parents' fault, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so maybe the takeaway from there is just get your kids out on the playground that has nails, let them poke themselves around and fall and break their arms and, uh, you know, let them sign them up for, for rec league soccer. Even if they hate soccer, say this is for your own good and, you know, have them build forts in the backyard and imagine that they're pirates, uh, you know, have them do all those things that a kid should do and don't just send them to an academy when they're two years old and have the academy go, we need to let these kids play some other different sports. Uh, anyway, this has been a great show. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as me. Maybe it was just me getting all these things off my chest. I didn't even get to all these Norwegian articles I've got pulled up. That's pretty standard, though. That's If, you, if you're if you a listener of the Studio Screw Podcast, you know that I tease things and never get to them. So maybe at another show we will. Who knows? It'll probably be old news by the time we do. You're listening to Shovel Lake Public Radio. This is the Cedar Skier Podcast. I just got one last thing to say. Keep on striving. No, other way. Keep on skiing. Keep on striving.